Hello and welcome to Metaphorically Speaking with Delia Delore, the show that explores the impacts of commonly used phrases on our world's diverse cultures and how people's use of them shape our perspective on the societies we live within. everyone is doing well and enjoying the changing of the seasons. I know with the sunny weather approaching and lockdown slowly lifting, it feels like normality is returning. But please remember to stay safe. Together we will beat this virus. Together we are strong. Our metaphor this week, we little but we talua, reflects our willingness to strive for strength together and with our incredibly inspirational and unique guest, Leroy Logan, you will be remembering this episode for the rest of your life, from beating racism to becoming inspiration for a Golden Globe winning TV series. Leroy's story is one for the ages. But first, let's look into the history of this metaphor and find out its true roots. Not underestimate we, we little but we talawa. Do not underestimate us, we are small but we are strong and fearless. This week's phrase, the unofficial motto of Jamaica, was brought to us by our guest Leroy Logan. Logan is primarily known for his work in British policing, being a founding member of the National Black Policing Association and working on some extremely high profile cases. However, you may recognize him from the recent Steve McQueen anthology series, Small Axe. John Boyega, star of Star Wars and Attack the Block, portrays Logan in the show. Red, White and Blue, the episode dedicated to Logan's story, is one in a series of short films telling the lives of real West Indian immigrants in London back in the 60s, 70s and 80s. Leroy Logan's drive into the police force came from direct experiences of racism in the UK, including a brutal attack on his father. Instead of moving past the issue, Logan made it his mission to join and change the institution from the inside out. As you will hear from him, he has worked extremely hard in tackling overt and systemic racism and through his work has done some impressive moves to do so. But before we hear from him, let's find out about the origins of this week's expression. There's no refuting the influence that the small island nation of Jamaica has had on the world. Their contributions to sporting, music, food and so many other wonderful things is undeniable. Jamaicans themselves are extremely proud of this national identity, which is one of the reasons why this week's guest, Leroy Logan, brought us the phrase, we little but we talawa. It really demonstrates the true Jamaican spirit proven time and time again through its rich history, especially during its colonial rule. Jamaica was once home to the Arawak, a people who gave us words like barbecue, hammock and tobacco. After the European discovery of the island by Christopher Columbus in 1494, the Spanish soon moved to settle in Jamaica. The Arawaks weren't immediately wiped out by the invasion. Those that didn't die directly were enslaved, often perishing from foreign disease and overwork. The population, as you can imagine, declined vastly, so Spain began to ship in captured people from Africa, primarily to maintain their workforce. These new-to-be Jamaicans made sure not to forget their African ways, but that's something I'll touch on a bit later on. 
Around 400 years later, and after a change of hands to the British, Jamaica saw the banning of slavery on the island. The abolitionists who brought about this important change weren't at all focused on the destructive nature of slavery. Instead, it was the economic effects that drew their attention. With Britain's industrial revolution beginning in the 18th century, the use of foreign slaves soon stopped being profitable. New industries rose up, the price of sugar declined, and the dangers of war meant that trade could often be interrupted. Another factor that heavily influenced the British was the fact that the slaves in Jamaica weren't afraid to revolt against their captors. Sixteen rebellions by the enslaved people took place between 1655 and 1813. By the 1820s, 2,500 slaves were escaping the plantations every year. The little but tallower spirit of the Jamaicans led to real change and on a global scale. The Maroons is a community that descend directly from these escaped African slaves and still live autonomously today, carrying on their West African traditions. The communities are now open for outsiders to see their way of life while still keeping certain traditions secret. But this wasn't always the case. Here is an excerpt of an interview with Sidney Piddy, a Maroon chief. Let's talk about maintaining the culture and maintaining the spirit because obviously we live in a world that has changed a lot from since back in the days 300 years ago, 250 years ago. How is it that in the face of what they call, they got a big word that's called modernization, yes. in the face of all this big modernization, how you are able to keep this thing together? Well, we have our annual celebration on the 6th of January each year, visited by people from almost every country in the world. But how we maintain the culture and heritage is by teaching the young. We try to tell them as early as possible that they can be great. We learn them our songs, to tell them about our history, tell them about the traditional foods that we used to cook, our ancestors used to cook, and then we keep it that way. So when they grow up, they just fall in line and we carry on. So, so the question of educating the young people is extremely, exactly. extremely important. The communities first rose up during Spanish rule and saw an increase in membership when Britain invaded the island. The Spanish abandoned their plantations due to the conflict and so many slaves escaped, taking advantage of the political turmoil at the time. Punishment to recaptured runaway slaves was truly horrific. A first offence would lead to their Achilles tendon being removed. A second would lead to amputation or worse. This forced the Maroons to establish extremely well-hidden communities. They also held their own in military potency, perfecting techniques in guerrilla warfare. Residing in both the east and west sides of Jamaica, they covertly monitored the land, only revealing themselves after identifying real threats, so as to not draw attention to their communities. One reason that their guerrilla campaign was so successful was due to their use of camouflage, which enabled them to launch surprise attacks on the English. The Maroons' intimate knowledge of the terrain allowed them to move, evade and watch the enemy with relative ease, enabling them to lay in wait and hear the opposition's plans so they could then adapt their own. This gave the Maroons the luxury of trading space for time, a principal element necessary for a successful guerrilla campaign. This is because it meant they could dictate the terms of conflict so that they were favorable to them. Fighting was inherent in the Maroon culture. Young Maroons, 
boys and girls, received military training in the use of spears, machetes and bow and arrows from a very early age, illustrating the Maroons' confidence in the organization and preparation for their community's future. The British indeed tried to fully capture the island but were never able to. After the first of the two Maroon Wars in the 1700s, a treaty was signed which granted the Maroons to live independently and at peace alongside the British. Mistrust between the two factions spawned the Second War, in which the British deported some 600 Maroons to Canada. The Jamaican Maroons have always been recognized on the island as an important part of Caribbean history. They embody the phrase, we little but we taloa something they kept in common with those who never managed to escape, but kept fighting always. This is the basis as to why we little but we talawa has become so important to Jamaicans, no matter where they may be in the world. It's like a call back to the island. Here is the 2019 Miss World winner, Tony Ann Singh, during her coronation. People back home in Jamaica, it's a wonderful country. I've been there many times. How do you feel about, A, the support they've given you, and B, how do you feel that you've, what you've given them tonight by winning this? Jamaica. I can talk to them. Yes, you can. Jamaica. Talk to me. Someone here will be filming this. There they are. They're over there. They're in, there they are. I want to say we lick a bit, but we talawa. <laughs> and for all of those under the sound of my voice that don't know what that means, it means we're small, but our heart is strong. To my country, I love you. Thank you for rallying behind me. I am so grateful. One of Jamaica's most well-known contributions to global culture has been within Sporting. In a country that has a population of about 3 million, that's less than half of that of London, it's incredibly impressive to think how they have placed themselves on the Sporting map. Jamaica is currently home to the two fastest people in the world, Usain Bolt, widely considered the greatest sprinter of all time, and Shelley Ann Fraser Price, the first mother in 24 years to win a 100-metre global title. A little Batalawa group you may have heard of is the 1988 Jamaican national bobsleigh team, the squad in which Disney's Cool Runnings was loosely based on. The team, as you can imagine, had very little experience coming from a tropical climate, but it was their underdog status that shot them into fame. Even after finishing 30th in the Winter Olympics, the team continued to compete globally. And since, a woman's squad has formed competing in both the 2014 and 2018 Olympic Games. I'll leave you now with a clip from the movie. Here, a small junior realizes the ferocity he possesses with a little encouragement from his friend. Now look in the mirror and tell me what you see. You see junior. You see junior. Well, you want to know what I see? I see pride. I see power. I see a badass mother who don't take no crap of nobody. You really see all that? Yeah, man. But it's not about what I see. It's about what you see. Now look in this mirror and tell me again what you see. <clears throat> well, I see... Pride! Pride! Right. Power! Power! I see a badass mother who, who don't take, take no, no crap off of nobody. Again, I see pride. Can I hear you? I see power. 
I see a badass mother who won't take no crap off of nobody. Once again! I see pride! Junior! I see power! I see a badass mother who won't take no crap off of nobody! That's right! That's right! Junior Bevel! Wait, wait. Leroy, of all the metaphors you could choose, what made Little Batwitalawa one that you could relate to? Well, as a person of Jamaican heritage, both my parents from Jamaica, and uh, I had the opportunity to go to school in Jamaica, a primary school stage, and those few years was a cultural and identity masterclass, which I always um, look at fondly and it still influences me to this very day and as a result of that 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 term has, has always been a mantra that you know despite your size you can always punch above your weight and uh, jamaica's shown that over the decades in all sorts of fronts in the arts in sports in media etc so identify with it as a person of jamaican heritage but I, I first heard the word Talwa when I was in England, and I think it was one a, a dance troupe or something. And then I heard it again in St. Lucia. They named it Talwa, and that's what, when I first heard about it and thought, oh, this is an interesting. And then when I um, heard of you and episode Red, White and Blue, and then I you know, obviously read some parts of your book, I could understand um, why you would consider that metaphor is something that you could uh, talk about because I can see that pattern um, in the way that you have uh, lived your life and career. As I said earlier, I've read up on your story. It's been incredible from your first-hand experiences of racism with your father's brutal attack to your contributions to the Damiola Taylor inquiry. At any time in your life, have you ever thought you could have done more, be it in your policing work within the Black Police Association or in everyday life? on things I've done throughout my life and, you know, in formulating the book as well as being involved in the Red, White and Blue episode of Small Axe. I, I don't think I left anything on the sporting arena. I always felt that I was in that arena and giving it my all, recognising that excellence is the best deterrent and I knew to be excellent, I have to put in the hours, I have to put in the hard work and graft and really just mirror what I saw with my parents and the discipline and determination they instilled in me and my sister to, to ensure that we not only survive, but we strive and achieve our true potential. So no, I even now I'm still working as an activist and an advocate so I'm, I'm not sitting back and thinking, well, I've done my 30 years in the Met and, you know, just put my feet up. I'm still getting my hands fully dirty in the tough struggle for equality and justice. And I'm still current in, in those affairs and I intend to do so as long as I've got health and strength. So no, I don't feel I've left anything in the locker room. It's all been in the arena for justice and equality. 
What would you say is more important to you now, the fact that you are still very active and looking at day-to-day -day and future possible issues, or what you highlighted in your book and in the Small Axe series? Well, they're all important. Uh, I mean, the Small Axe um, episode, Red, White and Blue, of my life, you know, it's really uh, a starter. You know, it's just a taster of what my life was really all about. So the book, for me, is a, a good understanding of who I am, what drives me, the sense of character. Uh, and, you know, I, I've obviously got my own flaws like everyone else, but what you see is what you get with me. And um, I, I don't think there's anything I've omitted that's not the emotional truth. I haven't flowered anything up. I'm quite brutally honest, even to the fact that um, my personal life wasn't totally perfect. You know, my wife left me at one stage, and it was a wake-up call for me. And also the fact that even in the Black Police Association, it wasn't perfect, but we had to work hard. And then not only pushing back on the... Um, the attitudes of the majority culture colleagues, but also amongst our own ranks. Sometimes our own members would be just as disruptive and adversarial as white colleagues were. But I, I, I think it's like everything you, you, you put the most balanced view of what happened and who and how it impacts you as an individual. And I try to do that at all the stages in my life. And I, I think, in all honesty, uh, there's a second book in there somewhere. And because uh, you can't put in everything, um, quite a few um, sections were left out. And uh, I hope to pick them up in a second book at some stage. Why did you think it was important to write the book? Well, I, I retired in 2013 and I actually started to formulate my ideas in 2010 when I was on the Olympic security team. And I just sensed that the internal culture of the Met, hostile and toxic as it is, has never been really fully put out there in a very resilient and, and determined way. I, I know a lot of people have written books about the culture from a relatively victim-focused point of view, but I wanted to show that you, I could succeed despite all the challenges. And if I can do it, anyone else can do it. So I wanted to give it that journey and the humanity behind it and also my spiritual resilience that kept me strong and I wasn't going to give up. And my, my cultural identity, as I spoke about, that gave me that determination and making sure that I was not going to let anyone define me and I wasn't going to be derailed by anyone. And I made sure that it came across loud and clear. And I, I believe it's the themes of the book around injustices and inequalities and how we overcome them are still relevant today. Uh, in fact, the timing of the book and 
the red, white, and blue film, and the whole series of small acts was so relevant, especially after a few months after the George Floyd lynching, and of course the proliferation of the Black Lives Matter movement, which I fully identify with. In fact, I went on one of the early June marches in London, and for me, it was um, showing solidarity for those issues which I've been struggling with and many others like me in organisations, public and private, who wanted to make a difference and change the culture of the organisation to celebrate diversity and to deal with the inequalities and injustices. So for me, it just resonated all at the same time. The, the bells were chiming to say, listen, this needs to be said. And I couldn't have planned this better if I tried. I, I mean, I've, I've developed many strategies in the Met and since, but this one was beyond me. It was divine intervention in a lot of ways. And you don't have to be a forensic scientist to know when God's DNA is in something. So I personally felt that it's God's timing and it's had a massive response, which I'm very encouraged by. Well, I must say that watching the Small X series was very bittersweet because on one level, it brought back all those lovely childhood memories of how things used to be, especially with family, because I think in a way family seemed to be closer, maybe because we were more protective at that time. I don't know, because I know it's still this case um, every day. Um, but at the same time, I felt very sad that the vision of then, I can still see them now. They're just in different ways, in different forms, but the underlying issues are still there. And I, a tear came to my face when I saw the part where um, I think you were putting on some uh, white plimsolls, whether it was you or one of the series, I remember someone was putting on some white plimsolls. Yeah, I think it was you putting on those white plimsolls. I thought, oh my gosh, um, I haven't seen one of those in years. And I remember the, the, the turmoil sometimes where putting them on, I, I wanted to do my pee, but I didn't want to do my pee, and then they got dirty so quickly, and then um, all the, um, the abuse that, you know, I went through, because my mom um, is from St. Lucia, and she's very fair-skinned, and in the British weather, she appeared white. So I'd get a lot of jokes from people about that. So it brought back a lot of memories, and uh, then, you know, when you look at what's happening in the world today, um, not much has, has changed, and maybe it's just more... I wouldn't say it's behind the scenes because, you know, the George Floyd movement in there and Daniel Taylor and all these issues have brought things, uh, I wouldn't say not to a head, but uh, it's the beginning. It's not the end. It's the beginning of something new. And maybe, you know, our children, our children's children um, will see the benefits of all this. But I think the series and uh, your book just brought me, you know, right back into and under I understood more why my parents were the way that they were. But um, Whilst you were in the force, did you come in contact with any black female officers? Were there many at the time? And do you see the, the issues that were there then the same or better for black police officers? Well, when I joined in 83, there, there wasn't that many um, black female officers beforehand. 
but I, I know when I joined in 83, there was a large group in drive. I mean, you started to see uh, black female officers joining. In fact, when I went to Hendon in June of 83, in the foundation course, um, I, I met a couple of uh, black female officers. Some of them, or well, at least one of them, was involved in the early stages and the founder member meetings of the Black Police Association, which we set up um, 11 years later in, in September 94. So yeah, there, there was um, an increase in black female officers. And we realized that, you know, as black officers, we were subject to overbearing conduct, the casual racism, was rife in those days, the N-word, the W-word, and we saw that officers of minority groups were not being supported as they should be because the white-run uh, police federation only looked after their own. And, and that's one of the drivers why we set up the Black Police Association to support not only black police officers, but black police support staff. And that gave us a very unique look at the organization. And it, I think it's one of the strengths that it's bridged the divide between officers and police support staff. And I must admit, I, at those early stages, we realized that black female officers suffered a double whammy, not just in terms of the color of their skin, but also the, the fact that they were female, because the Met is a macho, testosterone-driven organization, and, and a lot of the discourse is like locker room-type language and attitudes. They used to say, if you couldn't take a joke, you should not join. And that was always at the expense of someone. So if it would be a joke because of the color of your skin, because the color of your hair, your gender. And so we realized that we needed to support black women as in particular because of the double whammy they faced within the organization. And, and that's why I'm really proud to know Janet Williams, who is the first female chair of the Black Police Association, who I met through the Damalola Taylor investigation. She was part of the cadre of officers that helped in solving that crime, uh, where white officers were not getting a breakthrough. And that initial meeting with Janet in 2000 and working with her and I suppose in a lot of ways trying to mentor her, she has now been one of the the long-standing chairs of the London Black Police Association, and she's the current chair as we speak. She was also president of the National Black Police Association for a couple of years. So she has really shown her, her strength of character and a real role model for, for women, regardless of color of their skin, on how to really achieve, achieve so much and make sure that the issues of women, in particular black women, are taken into consideration in all aspects of policing, internally or externally.
I wasn't aware of that. Um, it's something that I'm going to look into because that uh, it's amazing, and it's it's uh, you know of course now we have uh, Kamala Harris at the helm in the USA, and um, you know it just shows you know when we have uh, people like that that uh, once you're determined and once you stand up for what you believe in, um, hopefully people will uh, get the message and. Uh, and support you and you can then be in a position of don't leave it too long because janet's retiring late this year okay. i think in the autumn so uh, I, I would suggest you know if you want to follow up yes and you know and you can easily contact her through the, the met bpa website and um i'm sure she will respond through her team and you'll hear her story which is very strong very definitive and i suppose I identify with her as well as, as a fellow uh, person of Jamaican heritage. You know, her, her parents are from Jamaica. So I, I'm sure she'll identify with, with little Mokritalo. Definitely. I will uh, definitely get my team uh, to try and uh, make contact with her team. But I know we spoke uh, earlier on uh, about the series, and I just want to just briefly touch on this because I'm sure people are wondering as well. When, what was it like when you were seeing your family on screen um, in red, white and blue? Did uh, John and Steve McQueen uh, capture the essence in what you actually went through? Yeah, it was very surreal, very cathartic, very um, sort of out-of-body experiencing yourself on the big screen with an A-lister actor playing me and you've got an A-lister director, Oscar-winning director, directing everything. I even went on set and I think that's when it really hit me, seeing John in uniform and really sort of saying things that I would say because I was involved in um, developing the the script as well and and then of course seeing my wife Gretel um, being played by Antonio Thomas and Steve Toussaint playing my father it, it was quite remarkable and um, yeah I must admit I went to a private showing before it went on BBC on the 29th of November and because that was a big screen and it, again that made it sort of larger than life and I think what struck me, even from that first time, and I've seen it several times, even on iPlay, because it's still available on BBC iPlay and, and also on Amazon Prime, especially in America, it's still being shown regularly over there. And what really struck me is the emotional truth. It really was authentic. I can't think of any person within my episode that didn't play the characters, even my best friend Lee John, mm. uh, Tyrone, who played Lee, mm -hmm. was excellent. And for me, if, if, even though as a drama, he was very accurate, because most dramas can be quite um, economical with the facts, but I would say that the accuracy of the drama was 85%, but the emotional truth was 99%, I felt authenticity of each of the actors and how they played each of the individuals to be truthful and I, I couldn't criticize it in any way. After you saw it, particularly in the first time, did it force you 
to see yourself in a different light? Is there anything that you could say, well, you know what, I did that when I was much younger, but I've learned a lesson just from watching this. And from now on, I'm actually going to do it this way. I think that really, the thing that really struck me is the sense of isolation that I was going through. I didn't realize how much it was because there were certain parts of the film where John would be sitting there looking at his uniform or looking at himself in uniform or just reflecting back on what's just happened to him in the police station locker room. And I remember those isolated moments. And again, the, the emotional truth that John portrayed was really struck me very hard. And I realized how important my family and friends were that were and still important today. And how that helped me to get through, not just through my personal determination and resilience, through my faith and my real understanding of purpose and the meaning of why I was in the Met, but I also needed the support of my family and my closest friends. And that really struck me and, and how important those friendships are to this very day. So it, it, those sort of things that came to me and it, it just showed that I had to go through all those things to be able to narrate it through the film, through the book, through personal um, interactions such as this and, and hopefully people can identify with that in their personal struggles to this very day and in the future. And, and I've been really encouraged by so many um, officers who are, who are still current in, in various force areas around the country or who left because uh, they couldn't take any more that toxic environment. And, and they, they said, thank you for, for speaking my truth as well. And I, I'm really pleased that they, they saw I was being honest with what we go through not trying to elaborate or place the race card or, you know, play in any shape or form. I was just speaking my truth. And I, I've been struck by the lack of pushback. You know, you've got your one or two people saying it's boring or is this and that, but I'm a, I was expecting a lot more of that. Mm -hmm. um, I've been really encouraged by even some hardened officers who actually said, gosh, you know, I'm really pleased that you did this film because the challenges that you faced are the challenges we still face in the police. And, and that was from a, a very high ranking officer, uh, superintendent rank as, as myself, who's currently doing work in the Met. Uh, his name is Roy Smith. And to get that sort of response from him doing current work now and how the film has struck him and what it was really saying about things need to change and for the better. And we haven't got time to waste, especially with this whole Black Lives Matter movement. We need to get really clear on what needs to be done and in a sustainable and irreversible way. This week, we've heard how the expression we little but we taloa came to be, and how Jamaicans like Leroy Logan have used it throughout their own life and career. From Jamaica to the UK, it's a wonderful expression that has inspired a whole nation of people and continues to do so. 
This mantra has helped elevate those who have felt downtrodden and powerless to completely change that feeling and the world also. From escaping the clutches of British slavery to toppling racist practices in the British police force. This motto will forever unite Jamaicans and hopefully after hearing today's episode will inspire you too. Let me leave you with one final thought, a quote from the Dalai Lama, someone born to a humble farmer but has risen to become the world's most popular leader. If you think you are too small to make a difference, try sleeping with a mosquito. It just goes to show you that no matter who you are, where you come from or what your upbringing is, you can always brighten your future. Together we are strong and together we can change the world. You never know, your new chapter in life could become the script to an Oscar-winning film or a Golden Globe-winning TV series. Thank you, Leroy Logan, for joining us and telling us about your incredibly unique and proactive story. And if you can learn anything from Leroy, just take in that you and you alone can make a change. Don't forget, if you'd like to suggest a metaphor for an upcoming show, you can reach us at msdelia at deliadelore.com and we'd love you to share the show with your friends or leave a review on colorfulradio.com or on our podcast, Metaphorically Speaking, which is on Apple, Spotify and all major streaming platforms. We depend on you to help us grow so we can produce the best content for you to enjoy. So please head on there now like it, make a comment. It really does help. Join us for another metaphor next week. I'm Delia Delore. Keep safe. <laughs>